and welcome to the 13th episode of Guido Talks, the podcast where we look over our favourite stories from this week in political journalism. My name's Tom Harwood and again this week I'm joined with Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines as well as reporter Christian Calgi. This week has been a rollercoaster ride, cramming in a lot of politics as it's the penultimate parliamentary week of term. Um, So without further ado, I suppose it's best to kick off with one of the most surprising stories of this week that dropped on Thursday evening, and that was a front bench Labour resignation. Can you tell us more about this, Christian? Yeah, this is something that had been building for some time. It's probably been about a month since uh, one of the big Sunday papers didn't include a story about Lloyd Russell Moyle. Uh, We've had all sorts from... uh, Uh, borderline anti-Semitic old Facebook posts to casting doubt on J.K. Rowling's sexual assault as part of a transgender row. Uh, And yesterday this culminated in his uh, resignation uh, from the shadow front bench. Um, I think many people will be surprised that Keir Starmer uh, didn't really have the balls to do it himself given the way he dealt with uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey. But the moment that Lloyd Russell Moore was appointed to the Shadow Cabinet. I think everyone uh, with uh, an ounce of political intuition knew that Lloyd Russell Moore was going to create problems. Uh, I mean, he was he was pretty extreme during the Corbyn days and uh, in the era of Keir Starmer. I mean, he was just so out of place with the new brand uh, that Starmer was trying to promote for the Labour Party. It was it was a disaster waiting to happen. Are there any proper hardcore Corbynites left in the Labour Party front benches now? I'm trying to think, because I think this is certainly the most high-profile one now to go. Uh, it seems like there's been a complete clear-out. Yeah, I mean, I think I would probably describe Dan Carden as a Corbynite, but I think he's been clever enough to keep his head down and, and stick to uh, stick to the book that Starmer is playing by, uh, and there's a couple of, uh, you know, completely irrelevant PPSs, but yeah, you're right, since Long Bailey and, and Russell Moyle have gone, but both, I've just realised, uh, double barrel name, I don't know if there's a, a correlation there, um, I think Starmer's uh, shadow front bench is going to be a much more politically stable entity than it was uh, before. Which is potentially worrying news for the Conservatives, given that we've seen, for example, the way that Keir Starmer has handled the Shamima Begum story uh, this week. He hasn't said a single thing on it. We haven't heard anything from the Labour Party on one of the most contentious talked about stories in uh, political and more wide than that discourse right now. And that's a world away from where we were this time last year, where... uh, where Jeremy Corbyn was making headlines by saying that Shamima Begum should be brought back to the UK, something that the vast majority of Brits disagree with. Uh, Keir Starmer clearly believes that, but he's being much more canny about not saying it. Well, he doesn't. You know, he doesn't have to take the risk so far from uh, the election. It's the exact same strategy we've seen with the wealth tax. I mean, we sort of know what the Labour front bench believe, but they're being very politically canny and just you know, staying shut up about it and not 
sparking the controversy. It's remarkable to have an opposition that doesn't actively want to make news. Normally, if you're in opposition, <laughs> you'll want to be getting your uh, thoughts out there, getting into the media as much as possible. But these, this seems to be an opposition that likes to sit on the fence a lot. So I'm not sure how well that will work out long term, but it seems to be paying dividends, or at least some dividends. Well, right is now. it? They're, they're ten points behind in the last YouGov poll. So I'm not sure it is working well for them. I mean, the, the, the Starmer bounce has evaporated pretty quickly, and they're just flatlining. That is true. I mean, I suppose we have to look back to the Miliband days to see, you know, Ed Miliband, it's quite hard to believe now, but was 10 points ahead of David Cameron for most of that coalition period. Uh, however, there are some polls that show it a little bit tighter, I think. Um, is it opinion that has it um, sort of four, only four points behind? Still enough to massively lose a general election. Um, but, but also it seems to be that the Labour Party has successfully eaten into that Lib Dem vote, whereas the Tory vote is holding up actually a little bit higher than it was in 2019. Um, but, but to move on from the uh, Westminster world for a second and into the realm of media, um, Paul, The Guardian are putting some pretty swinging cuts on their own staff. Yeah, well, they say they, they are going to have a revenue drop of 25 million, um, which they were aiming to break even. There was Well, they always talk every year about breaking even, but they were confident that with their new um, begging system and uh, the generosity of their readers, they were going to break even. That seems unlikely now. Uh, the, uh, they've announced 108 job cuts. Uh, the latest one today, was uh, a new one, was Steve Bell, the cartoonist. He's been controversial. His contract wasn't renewed. And they kind of pointedly said it wasn't to do staff cuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they didn't say we sacked him because he's gone too far. But I think that's the hint. Um, so that's one job cut um, that I think a lot of people will welcome. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's not only The Guardian that is having sweeping job cuts right now, it's also the BBC. Some might say the televisual arm of the Guardian newspaper, um, which has axed the Andrew Neil show as part of its big cuts program, and that's just uh, one part of 520 jobs that are now uh, announced to go. That's um, that's a further 70 on top of the 450 job losses that were announced just at the beginning of this month that I think we discussed on this podcast. This is a, an organisation that does not have its finances in control, that is looking at losing a lot of money. And as we discussed last week, this is at a time where there are lots of comparable organisations that are actually reaping in a lot of money because they opted for a different model or were, were less squeamish about becoming a market enterprise. But if you want more thoughts on that, please do listen to last week's show. Um, but moving on from the job cuts, there was someone who has come to the forefront of BBC coverage um, during the coronavirus pandemic who doesn't seem to be the archetypal impartial uh, BBC correspondent that we would normally expect of an organisation funded by ineffective tax. I mean, not at all. I mean, this is uh, uh, an investigation we did uh, yesterday into their community affairs correspondent, Rihanna Croxford, uh, who, has, who has in recent weeks really been uh, at the forefront of some of the BBC's uh, reporting. She is sort of relatively uh, new hire, but she takes uh, the uh, activist level of the BBC employees to a new height uh, 
for she uh, has uh, had photos of her actively campaigning for Labour in Labour rosettes uh, on her social media from just a couple of years ago. She called on uh, Theresa May to sack Boris Johnson as uh, the then Foreign Secretary. Uh, you know, all her tweets. Uh, I think they're still up. I don't know if we've we've checked, but it has had a lot of pick up. I think in the Mail and the uh, Express, and uh, it's it's not going to do much to assuage the current climate of fears that uh, the BBC is not taking its uh, impartiality constitution quite as seriously as it could be. No, it's, it's interesting because you don't often see a story about a, a, a person who presents a TV programme um, on the BBC who's uh, knocked on doors for the Conservative Party in any, any uh, years recently. Um, it does seem like this is a, a pretty one-way street when it comes to the organisation. But it, it's specifically with the, the BBC for me because, you know, if it was... Uh, you know, if it was like LBC or, or sort of an overtly we have people with opinion sort of broadcaster, I wouldn't mind. But because it's the BBC that for decades has sold itself as this great bastion of impartiality, and they've just become incredibly lax over the last few years. Um, and my my continuing thing is, I just I just look at the way they're they're performing, they're behaving, and thinking, are they really trying to get the license fee renewed? So obviously, the climate is more precarious now for the BBC's funding settlement than it has been for decades, and yet they're still not sorting out their act. It, it does surprise me how many Conservative MPs are now openly talking about the idea that it needs to move on to a different non-licence fee based model. This used to be something that was the preserve of some of the more radical think tanks in Westminster and now it's the uh, normal talking conversation of mainstream Conservative MPs. It's something the BBC needs to worry about or perhaps as we discussed last week, not worry about and in fact embrace and then they perhaps wouldn't have to be cutting hundreds of upon hundreds of jobs. Um, but let's move on from talking about uh, media job cuts and let's move on to uh, one of the big driving stories in Parliament in the middle of this week, a usurpation, a surprise victory for Julian Lewis on the Intelligence and Security Committee, becoming that committee's chairman. Paul, can you tell us more about the background of this story? Well, there's been a lot of excitement about when the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee was going to reconstitute because of the famous Russia reports and conspiracy theorists. And in fact, generally, there's been a, a, a feeling that Downing Street was holding up the publication because it was going to embarrass Boris or the government in some way. I'm not convinced it is going to be as exciting as people <laughs> think, and it might be a bit of a disappointment. But that was the backdrop to um, the government trying to get uh, Chris Grayling to be the chairman. And there was a feeling that you know, this is particularly important. It has a different constitution to most select committees. It's uh, chooses its own chairman. It's not. It's not a, 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 a popular vote of, of parliamentarians, and it's constituted in such a way where it's generally non-partisan, and it's the establishment of all the parties to get involved. So, uh, Julian Lewis, who was the campaign manager for John Burko, pulled the same trick as he did <laughs> for John Burko. He got elected with Labour votes, and. To be fair to Julian Lewis, he is very well informed about these issues. It's his hobby horse. Security and defence has been his thing for decades. And Chris Grayling hasn't got such a sparkling CV <laughs> these houses. Uh, that's probably... And 
it was sort of felt to be a consolation prize. So it was no surprise that, um, uh, it was surprised at Chris Grayling, but it was no surprise <laughs> to, to most people that the, uh, the, uh, the, the Julian Lewis could pull off this trick. The government immediately reacted very badly and quite, quite aggressively took the whip off uh, Julian Lewis. Uh, this is probably in line with their tendency to be really tough. You saw them before the election when they got rid of a number of MPs, taking the whip off them, you know, even the former Chancellor of Exchequer, Phil Hammond, lost the whip. So he's, he's, he's a hardcore Conservative of many decades. He's probably the best man for the job, and the government has de-whipped him uh, in a fit of pique. After after all of the sort of furore that was in the media leading up to this, sort of saying there's this big-in position of Chris Grayling, who sits on the committee, becoming uh, the chairman, it actually only took one vote to stop that. It only took one Conservative to then say to the four Labour members of the committee, actually vote my way, and then it becomes a four-five decision the other way round. So it's quite odd it, that it wasn't, yeah. didn't sort of check that didn't count. It wasn't the most difficult coup in political history <laughs> in that sense. And I, I do I understand that um, Chris Grayling didn't even message uh, Julian Lewis about the vote uh, until about four o'clock that day. Uh, because it was just so presumed. Uh, one of the funniest things I find is that the government's line, uh, you know, when the, when the media sort of first found out that Chris Grayling was was the government's candidate, their government line was, well, it's up for the to, the committee to decide, and the committee did decide, and the government didn't like it very much. No, it is it is quite funny though because he is a, such a Julian Lewis is a very eccentric member of Parliament. Um, we've reported before that he is one of the only, I think, the only mm. MP who does not use email to talk to his constituents. Yeah. If you want to message Julian Lewis and you're a constituent of his, you have to either write in with a pen and paper <laughs> or phone the office. Um, so perhaps this is something good to have as a as a security committee uh, chairman. He's he's pretty secure in his communication. Yeah, certainly not going to be hacked. I was drinking with some. Uh, uh, parliamentary staffers last night, and I can't tell you how jealous they are of Julian Lewis's researchers who don't have to deal with emails from constituents. <laughs> None of those big petitions that people sign <laughs> yeah, exactly. in to stop responses. Yeah. No, well, as a result of this vote, perhaps, we had a flurry of announcements about Russia in the following hours um, and day. Suddenly, uh, we had the government announcing that Russian actors were behind the amplification of the leaked trade documents that Corbyn famously brandished and, and brought up in a debate and had a uh, press conference all about that were, I mean, it was a very stage-managed affair where the Labour Party had, um, had activists dress up as nurses and hand out these, these documents to journalists um, in, in the room. Um, and it turns out that this is a leak that was amplified by Russia. The government is very confident in that assertion. And, I mean, it does make a lot of sense. If we're talking about who Vladimir Putin would actually want to win uh, in the 2019 election, is it the, um, the party that is traditionally stronger on things like NATO and national security? Or is it the guy that spent his entire parliamentary career of 30 to 40 years cozying up to all of Britain's enemies, trying to dismantle Western alliances? I mean, it's, pre it's pretty remarkable that you have uh, Labour-supporting left-wingers trying to genuinely make the case that uh, the Russian state would prefer Jeremy Corbyn, would prefer <laughs> P uh, Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister than Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, the mind boggles at that assertion. 
Um, but there was more news on top of that uh, on top of that leaked trade paper story. There was then the um, perhaps more substantial news that uh, came out uh, as, as a sort of joint statement between Canada, the US, and the UK, where all of these countries have said that the vital vaccine research into um, into a COVID nineteen vaccine was attempted to be stolen by the Russians as well. So this is a very um, active um, state that is trying to meddle in all sorts of affairs. Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit odd because the statement from the sort of vaccine researchers was essentially one: we keep this pretty secure anyway, so nothing was a threat. And two: we regularly share this information with the international community anyway, because it's a global fight against the pandemic. It was like, you know, it was like Russia was trying to break into a party that they could have just asked the doorman to let them into anyway I mean, it was uh, it was a, another one of these sort of disrupting things but we had Corbyn's response as well to the Russia hack which was that it were they were bogus claims uh, which again I mean it, this is Corbyn uh, doing down this country's security intelligence and taking the Russian Kremlin line on something mm. And it's absolutely unbelievable how brazen this guy is in, you know, just uh, trying to undermine this country's security at every turn, even and, out of office. And that bogus statement took how many hours to come out? I mean, I mean it was hours <laughs> and hours and hours after the initial announcement. Because, yeah. of course, the first uh, comment that we got from Jeremy Corbyn was when he was doorstepped. <laughs> Um, outside his house, and I think he just said goodbye twice <laughs> to the questions of whether he uh, was complicit in uh, a Russian interference with the 2019 election. Um, so obviously, some media manager has got to, has got to him after that and said, "Jeremy, you should probably make a statement." Um, not so, not yeah, sure. It, it, was, it wasn't a good media manager. <laughs> <was> the <laughs> no. Well, um, moving on from Jeremy Corbyn, thank goodness, as the country uh, really uh, decisively chose to do in December 2019, um, there, there has been um, some interesting quirks to uh, one of the new darlings of Parliament, Rishi Sunak, um, and, and his economic support package, his large package, as some uh, TV presenters have been uh, calling it. Um, what's been going on here? Yeah, this is uh, Dishy Rishi living up to the nickname here. This is a a, a funny uh, story that is essentially a, a a side effect of one of the Treasury's uh, programs uh, called the Future Fund Scheme. And essentially, if a company uh, can raise money from investors, the Treasury will uh, back it and 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 and, and double that amount. Uh, the problem with this was that a members-only sex club called Killing Kittens uh, managed to raise 170 grand from investors, and therefore uh, the Treasury have now uh, preliminarily signed off 170 grand of taxpayers' money uh, to this uh, female-friendly uh, sex party. Uh, and the great news is that if they fail to repay. Uh, the uh, £170,000, the British taxpayer will own a 1.47% stake uh, in <laughs> in an erotic female sex party, thanks to Rishi Sunak. <laughs> so this is marvellous. I suppose there are going to be so many more of these stories where we learn that now the British government is uh, <laughs> supporting all sorts of enterprises that I'm sure senior Conservative politicians might not want to be that closely associated with. Oh, in public? In public. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, we, I think we've moved on from the sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, where it was about <laughs> every week we were seeing some sort of Xenia Tori get involved in this stuff. Um, yeah, well, what an interesting story. <laughs> but no, I, let's, let's move back to, back to COVID now, because, of course, we've been following for quite a long time the, um, the story of um, this, this group of scientists that call themselves Independent Sage. And we brought out um, a, a story at the time that they launched that we have covered on this podcast before um, that showed actually all of these scientists, pretty much every single one of them, has quite a political background and a reason why they might want to be offering alternative advice, doing down the SAGE committee and doing down the government as well. There's, there's clearly quite an agenda behind this group, many of the members of whom have been members of political parties, there have been, um, uh, there's, um, Susan Mitchie is one who's been a member of the uh, Communist, Communist Party, Party. Yeah. For, for decades and decades. There's another communist on the team as well, or rather I think a former member of the Greek Communist Party, someone who was a member of parliament in Greece, uh, people who have been um, involved in all sorts of political campaigns, lots of anti-Brexit people on there as well, obviously. Um, but no, this is the uh, most recent um, scandal involving this group, which has been that they have um, they've started a fundraising drive because they want a lot more money uh, so that they can, I suppose, have a more flashy PR campaign to do down government advice. Um, but there's an interesting point behind this fundraiser, because if you read down to the small print of it, it takes several clicks to get right down into the bottom in some quite ambiguous language. But it turns out that the fundraiser is being run by an activist group called All the Citizens, sometimes We the Citizens. Um, they're sort of interchangeable, but this is an activist group that is filled with um, anti-Tory social media videos on their website, lots of conspiracy stuff about the usual Cambridge Analytica uh, conspiracies and all of that. And actually the people that are listed on their website aren't scientists at all. It's people like Carol Codwallader. It's people like Shamir Sani and his, uh, the, the, the failed Brexit whistleblower and his, his lawyer as well from Binman's, the left-wing um, legal company. So this is a, a highly activist organisation just so nakedly laying out here. And I think it's one of the reasons why the government doesn't really take, or not really the government, the media doesn't really take this fake SAGE committee particularly seriously. Yeah. I mean, it could have been called all the usual suspects for all the uh, the branding of this uh, this group. It's absolutely remarkable that it's I so... Thought, I thought we went with sausage, self-appointed to undermine... Sorry. <laughs> that, that is, I think, what we should begin to call them um, across the board on the blog. <laughs> but it is interesting. It's quite damaging because they do call themselves... Um, independent sage and they do actually confuse quite a few MPs I think it's uh, people like um, Angela Rayner have tweeted before well sage says something different actually yeah. pointing to an independent sage report which of course is the sausage report which is <laughs> not which is the activist report uh, not official I think I think we should all start calling it sausage really quite frequently yeah. or not talking about them at all They're, those are the two options there was some briefing in the Sunday papers where the, uh, the, the chief medical officer was getting a bit annoyed with them confusing the messaging Yes. yes. As if we weren't already confused by the message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, well, I mean, scientists disagree. Shock horror. I mean, the, the idea that all scientists have always agreed on everything, I think, is a peculiar one. Yeah. And one that disagrees fundamentally with the scientific method. Mm. But, uh, you know, to what extent are most of the members on sausage uh, scientists or political activists with degrees in... You know, bio, biology or chemistry. Right? Well, we we sat through their first public meeting of sausage, and we, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna continue I'm gonna continually call them sausage now. Um, but uh, we sat through their um, first official meeting, and it just turned into a big whine about austerity. It's like, sorry, we're we not we're not supposed to be hearing something to do with uh, COVID nineteen advice here, but no, they were just talking about political points for a large large chunk of it. Um, so you can find that report on the Guido Fawkes website as well. Um, but moving on from sausages and towards and towards um, some Whitehall skullduggery with a local elected independent mayor. What, what's all this about, Calvin? I'm always delighted to bring the political news from the Tees Valley into the Westminster bubble. Uh, and, and what we had here was a, a pretty remarkable uh, story, actually. Since the Black Lives Matter um, protests erupted, we've seen... Uh, Whitehall getting more woke. We've had uh, DEFRA uh, emailing all employees and telling them to educate themselves on microaggressions and trigger warnings, etc. We've had the Department of Education uh, sending out a, a sort of library of educational literature, uh, including the song F the Police, which uh, really did fit in with the Black Lives Matter theme. Uh, but now we've actually had a, a government quango essentially cancelling an elected politician. The story is that the uh, Environment Ag Agency, uh, who are a quango of DEFRA, were due to meet with the independent mayor of Middlesbrough. And yet because of a Facebook status the mayor of Middlesbrough had put out, um, which was actually, I'd say, not not bad it was it was pretty balanced not everyone is perfectly educated on these matters not everyone knows all the language but it was saying black lives matter of course all lives matter and because of this um the environment agency cancelled the upcoming photo shoot because they believed his words weren't in the weren't in keeping with the political messaging uh that they were trying to put across uh and uh, i think a lot of people i uh, I spoke to about this were were just absolutely staggered, and they think you know what next. Well, this is remarkable because, of course, it goes against the last four years of of the political story of this country. You know, um, a, an independent mayor of a left behind town in the north, where most of the deprivation is to do with you know white working class yes yeah. is talking actually saying yes, Black Lives Matter, but also. So do all lives. Yes, that doesn't seem like a particularly contentious no, thing to say. Especially, and yet some yeah. civil servant in Whitehall <laughs> has the temerity to then go and cancel his photo ops. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's really overstepping the mark. Um, and uh, they need to wind their neck in, quite frankly. But it speaks It speaks to the whole sort of um, ethos of this government when it comes to talking about how uh, far away the civil service is yeah. sometimes from reality and the necessary um, need for reform. Yeah, um, and, and hopefully Dominic Cummings will uh, turn his attention to the Environment Agency. We, yes. we, well, we I mean, it, is, it is the story of COVID, really. How many of these quangos, whether it's the Environment Agency, whether it's Public Health England, which is another one that has come under a lot of 
um, scrutiny recently, um, just this week, for their uh, misreporting of COVID-19 deaths, counting someone who was, um, you know, if, if, if someone had recovered from COVID-19 and then was hit by a bus, they'd still be counted as a COVID-19 death under the Public Health England uh, guidelines, um, uh, let alone the Public Health England reluctance to scale up testing at the beginning of this crisis. You know, the quango story of the last few months has been one of absolute shambles. And really, it's time to wind back that sort of Blairite um, idea of moving away responsibility from politicians towards unaccountable bureaucrats. Mm. It's time to bring that back under democratic control so that people can be accountable for the decisions they make. I mean, just another one is NHSX, that app fiasco, where the guy who ran that app, who ran that programme, that failed programme, is still in post. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable that people can just continually fail upwards in the civil service. Um, but no, let's, let's move on to perhaps one of the biggest cultural stories this week when it came to... Um, the new mandate from government that came at the beginning of the week, we're all now expected to wear masks, Paul. Yeah, we did a story, we called it the uh, Mask Hokey Cokey. Uh, I can't say it went well with many of our readers. <laughs> I, I'm quite surprised how charming the emails were I got saying <laughs> I was a sheep, uh, didn't know what I was talking about, I was being taken in. Um, our readers, or a certainly vociferous section of them, do not approve of wearing masks. I don't have a big problem. It's not the biggest threat to my freedom. Anyway, the, the point we were making in the story was that in March, the official advice was masks were unnecessary. Um, the chief medical officer in, in, um, uh, in April said there's no evidence about wearing masks being any effective. Um, Jeremy Hunt then, later on, and he's chairman of the Health Select Committee now, said that um, protecting NHS supplies was the reason that they were giving that advice. And in fact, that seems to be the story of the world wide. Um, say in the States, where the, the um, Fauci's basically admitted that they were worried about protecting uh, supplies of medical masks for medical purposes. So that's why they didn't um, encourage it. Um, you know, you're seeing all these people having absolute fits in America. You've got all these social media Karens in stores <laughs> losing the plot. There's a recent case of someone in Ontario ending up assaulting uh, a shop worker, getting into a shootout with the police afterwards, and ending up dead. Just put a mask on, you know? <laughs> it's not a that big a deal. Um, uh, Michael Gove did confuse the messaging on Sunday. He said masks should be uh, a matter of politeness. Then he's photographed the stores not wearing masks. Uh, Murrah Buckland on Monday said it was more than just a courtesy, it was a, a, a question of consumer confidence if you want to go out. Uh, Hancock then told the Commons later in the day that masks were going to be uh, mandatory in shops with enforcement by the police. Although that's not quite clear that the police are going to be chasing people around Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> so from the 24th of July, masks will be mandatory in shops. Um, I went to a restaurant for the first time last night in London and uh, I was eating outside and I noticed that quite a lot of people were wearing masks. Uh, not my waitress though. <laughs> That's interesting. I went to a, um, a restaurant on Monday and the waitress was wearing a mask. Um, but um, we who were eating weren't for obvious reasons. Some staff um, were wearing masks. So it yeah. seemed to me that there was, I don't know what the ruling was in that, in that particular establishment. Um, uh, libertarians objecting to wear masks 
I mean, a lot of my friends are saying it's a big infringement on their liberties. Douglas Carswell is saying, if it's so dangerous out there that you have to wear a mask, maybe we shouldn't go out. And he's not really wearing a mask. Um, so no point in me sending Douglas one of our own branded <laughs> Guido Forks masks, um, which uh, reflect the avatar. And you can see a very charming picture of uh, myself on the website, uh, sporting one of those. It's, I don't know why it's so controversial. It seems to me uh, if it's going to help protect yourself and others just because we're asymptomatic and you don't want to sneeze over people, it's not that big a harm. And I mean, the comparison is if we, if we don't wear masks widely and that leads to an uptick in the uh, rate of infection, um, a, a bigger seconds peak and, and then perhaps another lockdown. What is the greater infringement on individual yeah, liberties? Quite, quite. Closing down businesses or wearing a bit of paper over your face. Um, and, and actually we were quite fortunate because we'd ordered these uh, few Guido Fawkes masks uh, the week before they became mandatory. So this is some wonderful foresight on our part. I keep trying to persuade you, Paul, to make hundreds of these. I think they'd be quite popular. I, I'm really looking shit. into it. I mean... I don't, I don't know how much abuse we'll get for it, but, but yeah, I think there is demand for the mask, and we'll, we'll see what we can do about that. Well, you heard it here first on Guido Talks. You might be able to purchase your very own Guido Fawkes mask. Um, thank you for listening to this week's episode. That's all we've got time for. Um, but do catch us again next week for the last in the series. Of course, Parliament closes for summer recess next week, and um, and that's where that's where we'll end this series, picking back up again. Uh, when Parliament returns. So thank you for listening. Catch us next week. Stay safe, stay alert. Goodbye. See Keep your mask on. <laughs>